Okay, let's take a look at the congregation at prayer. It's a real short verse for this week. Uh, the verse is from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, 5. Let's speak this together. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. All right, there's really only two things uh, that I have to say about this. The first is, I was brought forth in iniquity, which says, I was brought into the world already having sin. I, brought, I was brought forth into a sinful world being already full of sin myself. And how is it that you are brought forth already with sin? Because in sin your mother conceived you. In sin my mother conceived me. You are conceived in sin and therefore born in sin. Now this is the teaching of original sin. This is where we get that teaching. Original sin. You have sin that is innate. It's, it's inside of you. You just can't escape it, no matter how hard you try. You can try to be good, and you're still going to do bad things because you are sinful. Um, all the more reason, then, why Lutherans baptize infants. Because if you really believe that Psalm 51.5 is true, that in sin those children are conceived and in sin they are born, then how much more then are they going to need the grace of God? A washing and rebirth in the Holy Spirit, as the Catechism says, uh, in the waters of holy baptism. So let's speak this one more time. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Okay, what is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Okay, why is it that you daily sin much? Because of the old Adam, right. And the old Adam is synonymous with what doctrine from Psalm 51? Original sin. You daily sin much because of original sin, because it's in you. So we pray that our Father in heaven would not look upon it. And I, that's how it begins, that our Father would not look at our sins. You have sins, but you pray that your heavenly Father would not look at them. That he would put them aside and not see you for who you are based on your sins. Or that he would deny your prayer. And this is the question, why would God deny your prayer? Because you are neither worthy of the things for which you pray, nor have you deserved them, because of your original sin. So God has every right not to hear your prayers. But he chooses not to. And we, can, we pray that he would continue to choose not to. That he would continue to look away from your sins and look at you, offer you forgiveness. And after having received forgiveness then, 
Uh, think of the parable of the, uh, the uh, servant who owes his master a great debt, and his master forgives him his debt, and then what does he do? He goes out into the yard and he shakes down one of his fellow servants for a, a pittance. And the master finds out about it, and what does he say? As I showed mercy to you, should you not also have shown mercy to your fellow servant? That is the heart of this petition. As God has shown mercy to you, as God has forgiven your trespasses, you also forgive those who trespass against you. You will sincerely forgive, and not only will you sincerely forgive, but you will gladly do good to all people, uh, especially those who sin against you. So, um, you know, it's like when you're, when you're young and you do something bad to your brother or your sister and your parents say to you, go apologize. And what do you do? You say this, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> and they say, no, say it like you mean it. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm sincerely sorry. But it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. You also then do good because the acts of good, good deeds to your neighbor done in love are fruits of forgiveness. Uh, okay, questions? All right, you may depart for Sunday school and we are going to continue here. Are you, are you asking me if I want to, or are you asking if it's all right if you can? Uh, we can come back to it another time, but in the Bible passage there, uh, it seemed that my mother conceived me. Yes. I got into a discussion with a pastor who has since left the ministry, who was, to say he was liberal would be an understatement, and so we were... The discussion was over abortion, and so I said, do you believe that God creates life? And he said, well, God and man together create life. And, and my point, uh, without taking, I, I think of the Bible passage where at the visitation, John the Baptist leaped at the, the thought of, mm -hmm. of Jesus being born, whatever. Yes. Anyway, but without that, my point was, if you're going to take a life, and I know a lot of people that don't consider abortion murder, yeah. you need to think very carefully before you take a life. Yes. I mean, not, not looking at any biblical aspect of it, just as a person, you know. Any, anyway, I, I, we can talk about it another time. But I thought yeah, I mean, it, I was struck by that. There's two things that I can say. First of all, in sin did my mother conceive me. That's first person. It's me. I was a child and I was conceived. That's life right away. <clears throat> also, uh, you formed me together in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Again, that is something where there is a life there. So if you want to talk about abortion, I mean, you, you have to be... Forgive me, because this is coming from a pastor, but you have to be a real special kind of evil to look at that child in the womb and to think, well, I'm just going to kill it in one of the most inhumane ways possible. That's all I'm going to say about that.
now. I don't want, I'm not going to, we don't have time to do that. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. And in fact, <coughs> we're that not. That has come to the point here very recently. With it the, has. With the, with the uh, State of New York. past year passing the laws in New York. Mm -hmm. It has. And, and if you've read that's, the text. That's up to one minute before birth. I mean, or or after birth, if it was uh, yeah. an abortion that was botched Thank and the child was born alive, because they wanted an abortion to begin with and tried to do one, that child's life is forfeit even if it's born and they're allowed to kill it outside the womb. Oh. If you've read the text of that, if you've read the text of that law, which I did, I was so angry, just shaking with rage reading this text because you read it and you think to yourself, how could somebody first of all write a thing like this and then how could somebody vote for it and cheer? And cheer and celebrate that you now have the right to kill your child. It's, I, again, it is a special kind of evil that, that is willing to do that kind of a thing. Yes. Oh. Uh, there is a great turn of phrase that was put out in a statement by a, a group of Catholic bishops. And they said, they are facing the whirlwind of hell. And I thought that was pretty stark. <laughs> I thought that was good. Anyway, uh, so to the topic at hand, which is going to be my way of finishing up the topic that we've been talking about for the last two weeks, which is not the topic that I was intending to, but that's okay, that's okay. I, I want to say two things, and these are it's two things that I meant to say last week and I just kept forgetting. The first is this. What is the color for funerals, the liturgical color for a funeral? What is it? White. It's white. And this is a point of departure that, that the Lutherans take from the Roman Catholic Church. Because what is the funeral color in the Roman Catholic Church, if you know? Black. It's black, that's right. So here's the next question then. We'll see if you know your liturgical calendar. When is black the color of the liturgy in the Lutheran Church? Good Friday. Good Friday, Good Friday and there's one more. There are two days and only two days in the entire liturgical year where black is the color. And Good Friday is the one. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. What do we talk about on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday? Death. Death? Of whom? Christ. Christ. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Uh, okay, that's the day when we, you, know, you focus on your mortality. That's the whole deal with the ashes. But it's also the beginning of Christ's journey to death. And that period of Lent. You know, everything is subdued in Lent. Why? Because you're not going to sing Alleluia when Christ is riding to die. Besides, we want you to save your Alleluias because when Easter comes, we're going to let forth with a holy Alleluia and it's going to shake the foundations of the earth. And it makes that Easter Alleluia so much better when you take a Lenten fast from your Alleluias. But it's all about mortality. It's all about the death of Christ. So black is the color for Ash Wednesday. And then Good Friday, that's an obvious one. Good Friday is the, the death of Christ. So it's black. Um, 
and, and you know, Maundy Thursday, what do we do? One of the historic practices is you strip the altar. You take all the pyramids off the altar. You take everything off of it. Why? Because the altar is Jesus, and you're stripping him. You're preparing him for burial. Um, in, in churches that have a stone altar, they also take oil, and they pour oil and spices onto the altar, and they rub the altar and clean it with oil and spices like they would have done to the body of Christ. Uh, so it's a neat practice. But that's where black is. That's where black is. But black doesn't belong in a funeral. Why? Because a funeral... Oh, well, I guess first I'll ask this. This will answer the question. Black is the color of death. What is, the, what is white the color of? Okay. Uh, life, though, in whom? In Christ. Yeah, white is the color of Christ. Okay. Technically, green is the color of life. Like springtime, when the grass comes and the, and the foliage starts blooming, that's life, it's green. So the church takes green as the color of life. Plus the vines, right? The vines grow and they, and they have green leaves. So the vine and the branches. But, um, but white is the color of Christ. So on very important feast days uh, of, of God, of the Trinity, and of Christ, like the Epiphany, like the baptism of our Lord, the parents are white. And at funerals, they are white. Because we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Because Christ is victorious even in death. That is why we use white and not black. Is it a time of mourning? Yes, it is. Why? Because you're all human beings. Because you can't love somebody and not mourn when they die. If you don't mourn when a loved one dies, then you probably didn't love them to begin with because death hurts. Death is an unnatural thing, and it's invasive. It is, it is violent. It rips you away from the people that you care about. It's a terrible thing. And we mourn, and rightly so. It's not a bad thing to mourn, either. There are some people that say, well, you know, don't you have hope in Christ? What you crying about? And that's just terrible. That's terrible. Get over it. Don't, you don't need to cry anymore. Jesus is one. Get over it. Well, get, I'm sorry to break this to you, but you'll never get over it. You, you, bear, you bear the sorrow of death with you for your entire life. It never goes away. You just get better at coping with it. But some days are harder than others. And, you know, 20, 25 years later, sometimes you still just have a day where you sit down and you cry because you miss somebody. And that's okay. Because Jesus cried too. What does Jesus do when he hears about his friend Lazarus? He weeps. He cries, and that's okay. But we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Why? Because white! Because it's the color of the resurrection. Because it's the color of Christ. Because we know where that person is there with Christ. And he's watching over them, and he's going to raise them up like he's going to raise you up on that last day. So that's the first thing. The funeral color also preaches. And um, there's also there's a pyramid called a pall, a funeral pall. And in many churches, you'll see that. That's also white. And what do they do? They take the casket, often right up to the communion rail, so that if you have communion at the funeral, everybody gathers around the casket as you commune. Now, what is that if it isn't the communion of the saints? That's a beautiful picture. But what do you do with the pall? You take the pall and you put it over the casket. So you're not looking at this casket. 
You're not looking at something that is a reminder of death and of loss and of sorrow. You're looking at the brilliant color of white. You're looking at a white robe of majesty, a baptismal robe that is put over that person. Why? Because they are in Christ. So it's a beautiful picture when you see the pall go over the top of that casket. I would never think to have communion at a funeral. Oh, it's beautiful. There was a, there was a funeral for a pastor a few years ago at my church, my home church. And first of all, a funeral for a pastor is an absolutely otherworldly thing. Uh, because pastors are, you know, even if you don't like each other, the bond of the ministry is a unique bond. And, and when a brother in the faith dies, it's a hard thing to bear. So pastors gather in large numbers to attend the funerals of other pastors. Oh, okay, so you know. The singing of the hymns is just spectacular. It shakes the roof because all these pastors come in. And there was the funeral of a pastor then uh, when they had communion and they brought the casket up to the rail and the pastors came around it and they all communed. And then the congregation came and he was a member of our congregation and they all communed and he was there as they communed and it was absolutely Beautiful. The confession that is made there is absolutely beautiful. Um, just as a story, the, this funeral that I uh, assisted with a few weeks ago, um, there, were, there were a lot of pastors there. And the pastors came outside and they created a line, a gauntlet, all the way to the hearse. And as the pallbearers came out with the casket, the pastors started singing for all the saints. Fifty-some pastors on either side as they brought this pastor into the hearse, and they just started singing. And it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, and, and here's, this is the honest truth. It's going to sound morbid, but this is the honest truth. I would always rather do a funeral than a wedding. Because what do you get to preach at a funeral? You preach Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead. You get to preach the resurrection in all of its unbridled glory in a way that you can only ever really preach on Easter. And even then, it's better than Easter. Because when you're preaching that at a funeral, there are a lot of people there that you don't know, but that you do know probably aren't coming to church. And what better message for them to hear one, as people that aren't coming to church, and two, as people who have just lost a loved one, than the message of the resurrection to come and the life that is one in Christ. I can't think of anything better than that. And that's when you really get to go with both barrels. And you just get to look out at everybody and you just go, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection, it's all about Christ. And here it is. This is why some of the funerals that you go to from other denominations where they just basically give you a big talk about how great that person was. It, well, how is, that, how is that comforting to you? If all you're going to hear about is, well, this person was really great. Oh, well, okay. I mean, I sure think he was, but what am I, okay, what am I going to do now? But when you have something, object, sure, he might have been great. But as great as that person is, Christ is better. And Christ has won for that person, something that person, no matter how good he was, couldn't win for himself. Run. At my aunt's funeral, you were uh, gone a week 
Hmm. At the beginning, they said, let's pray for Levina. Yeah. And I sat there and go, uh, we're a little late for that. Yeah, see, here's, this is the other thing. Who's a funeral for? <coughs> it's for the people. The, the person who has died doesn't need your prayers. The person who has died has, is beyond this veil of tears. They're taken away from pain and sorrow. They are now resting with Christ. And that's the answer to every prayer you can ask, is that they're with Christ. So the funeral isn't for that person. The funeral is for the people that are left behind. Uh, and for that reason, you know, you don't, they, don't, they don't need your prayers, but you pray for the people that are there. You pray for comfort. You pray for healing. You pray in thanksgiving for the resurrection that has been won. Uh, talking about funeral messages, funeral sermons. Mm -hmm. Tend to funeral for uh, an acquaintance one time, and uh, the pastor, when he gets up to uh, begin his sermon, his message, he gets out and he says, uh, for those of you, this is not the time to be mourning for the deceased. If you're going to mourn, mourn for yourselves because you're still in this world of sin hmm. and that and that. And it kind of struck everybody in an odd way. Yeah. You know, I mean, this person, time has passed. They kind of brought out that this person is no longer in pain. Suffering in that, whereas the rest of us here, we still have to put up with all of the perils and the temptations of the sure. world and that. So it took a little while to think that. that but, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a valid point. The, it's a valid point. This is now for all the all the benefits of preaching a funeral sermon. Here's one of the here's one of the the downsides of a funeral sermon. There's a lot that you can say. And there's very little you should say. <laughs> so there, you, can, you can say something that's 100% correct, uh, but is it the time to say it? Or, or is it the right way to say it? So I don't know. It's a perfectly, it's a perfectly true point, and it's, uh, that's interesting. And I guess in, you have to sort, sort of judge the people that you're preaching to. If that's something that they're going to be able to hear and still be comforted, um, or whether or not that's just going to be too much of a burden for them to bear on that day. Which is why pastors get to know their people. A funeral sermon, this is a plus, another plus of a funeral sermon, is the most, uh, this is the most personal sermon that you can preach. In many cases as a pastor, the person that you're burying is somebody that you've known for a very long time. Um, sometimes it's somebody that you've married. Sometimes it's even somebody that you baptized and confirmed. So you have sort of an intimate knowledge of the person. And as a pastor, you have a unique knowledge because you know, when you do confession and absolution, private confession and absolution, the pastor bears the weight of his people's sins. You are unburdened when you come, if you come to confess to me privately, I will absolve you and I will, I will remove that burden from you because I have the authority to do so in Christ. But the burden comes to me then and you can walk away free, but I can't. I have it. That's why I, this is what the stole is. It's a yoke. It's, a, it's the yoke of the burden. Every confession that I hear is another thing put on my shoulder. Uh, so, so that gives me a unique perspective then. 
gives pastors a unique perspective when you're preaching a funeral sermon because you know the person, but you also know what the person's struggles were. And a lot of that you learn at the hour of death as well. There's a lot that comes out there at the hour of death. There's a lot that, yeah, there's a lot that comes out at the hour of death um, that maybe, maybe you don't know before. Um, even the strongest of Christians become afraid on their deathbed. And ministering to the people who are dying is, uh, one, incredibly important for the sake of their own comfort and assurance in Christ. It's also important for the family. Uh, but, but, you know, you as the pastor go there to preach. And, and seeing somebody die in the faith, that's ultimately what you're here to do as a pastor. I do a lot of things here. I preach, I teach, I give you the body and blood, I give you the, the water of baptism, I absolve your sins. There's a lot that I do here. But there's only one thing really that I am called to do, that my office uh, instructs me to do, and all of the other things that I do fall under that one umbrella. And that is this. I'm here to prepare you to die. I'm here to prepare you to die. I give you everything that you need in this life so that when there comes time for you to die, you can die in peace and in joy, knowing what is to come. But that is my job. Now, this brings me to the second point that I did not get to last week. Since we're in here, this actually works real well because you have hymnals. You can open up if you want. You don't have to because I'm going to read it. But if you want to look at it, hymn number 708. 708. I think that this is one of the best funeral hymns in this entire hymnal and indeed that I have ever seen. And the third stanza is the one that I want to look at. And um, if you don't know this hymn, learn it. Learn the tune and learn it well. Learn the text and learn it well. Learn it by heart so you can sing it anytime, anywhere. Because this is a very, very powerful hymn. In fact, I've sung this at so many gravesides, so many bedsides, and at so many funerals that I cannot even sing it anymore. Because I, I begin to cry anytime I sing this because it brings back the memories of everybody that I know has heard this. But... Let's look at the third stanza here. Lord, let at last thine angels come. To Abram's bosom bear me home, that I may die unfearing. Now, we talked last week about the, this idea of Abram's bosom. What's being stated here is first an allusion to uh, Luke, the rich man, and Lazarus. Because the angels come to take Lazarus to Abram's bosom. But what that is, is an illustration of death in the faith. Abra Abraham is the person of the promise. So, you know, to be children of Abraham, what does it mean? It means to be children of the promise. The promise that was given to Abraham. You know, I will bless, bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. From you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because, he, because Christ is born in the line of Abraham. And you are now in the line of Abraham in Christ. You are blessed. You are a child of the promise of Abraham. You are dying in the faith. 
Okay? And because of that, you may die unfearing. And in its narrow chamber keep, my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. Now what's that? That's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. Your body <laughs> sleeps. Your body sleeps. And you await the resurrection to come. Okay? And then, from death awaken me, that these mine eyes with joy may see, O Son of God, thy glorious face, my Savior and my fount of grace. Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. What more can you say? That these mine eyes with joy may see. This is another reason why pastors' funerals are so well attended. Because the pastor, when a pastor dies, that's the end game for the pastor. If you think about chess, you know, that's the end game. What is a pastor doing through his whole life? He's burying people. And he's there, and he's burying people, and he's burying people, and he's burying people, and a pastor is surrounded by death until the time when the pastor himself dies, when his race is run, and that's the end game. You know, the pastor longs for the hope of the resurrection, but it's not his time. It's his time to give that hope to everybody else. But when a pastor dies, then that's the end game. That these mine eyes with joy may see. O Son of God, thy glorious face. When he comes back in the, with the radiance of the sun, again, Christ, the new sun, comes from the east because it's, that's where the sun comes from. We bury, excuse me, we bury with the feet facing east so that you can rise and face him when he comes. We pray facing east. This isn't east, but it is when you walk through those doors. Liturgical east, we pray facing east. Because when Christ returns, we pray facing where Christ is going to be. Um, that these mine eyes. And that's, an alter, that's another important thing too. What eyes are you going to see Christ with? These ones right here. These ones that are in your head. These ones that are connected to your brain right now. These are the eyes that you're going to see him with. But guess what? All of you who are like me that have a little bit of trouble seeing, you're not going to need these spectacles anymore. Yeah, there you go. No more glasses, no more bifocals, no more trifocals. Your eyes are going to be perfected. You're going to, you're going to be able to hop out, out of the grave and whip those things off. And you're going to be able to look at Jesus and you're going to be able to say, Ah, my Lord and my God. And it's all right here in the same. Now the other two stanzas are really good too, but that third stanza really just hits home uh, what we've been talking about. So I thought I would share it. Mm -hmm. And it's where Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross. And yes. It's in Luke, he said. And yeah. it says, you will be with me in paradise. Correct. And at the bottom of it, it explained paradise as a place being asleep with Christ. Which okay. is exactly what you said. Right. So, so, you know, if you get anything out of what I've been saying the past two weeks, these are a couple of the things I want you to understand. First of all, heaven... Heaven really isn't a geographical location. It's not like you can look at a map and say, well, 
here's heaven. You know, you go up, you ascend and go up into space, and then you reach a certain point, and then you go up even higher and higher, and then you're in heaven. As if, you know, like if you read Dante's Inferno, and you look at the maps that are drawn, and there's like the ring, which can't be true, because the world isn't flat. But, uh, but there's the ring, okay? There's the, the ring, and then there's another ring, and there's another <coughs> ring, and you just keep going higher and higher, and it's like on a mountain with these rings. And that's not really what it is. Now, the heavens... Uh, is another term for heaven, uh, um, the kingdom of the heavens. Now Christ ascends into the heaven, uh, into the heavens, but a cloud obscures him. A cloud comes over him, and then he's just gone. And you know, Christ is not a rocket ship. He doesn't. It's not like three, two, one, blast off, disciples. Now you're going to see me later. I'm going to heaven. You know, it's not like, it's not like that. Um, so heaven is not necessarily a geographical place. When you think of in heaven, what it really is is living in the mansions that the Father has prepared for you. It's, it's the entire experience. What is heaven? It is living for eternity in the perfected body with Christ in the new creation at the throne of God. That is heaven. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Um, so that's, you know, that's really what I want you to get. It, the geography is weird, and, and, and we don't think about things that way. It's, you know, well, anyway, it, it's, don't think of it like a geographical location. Like, you can look at a map and, and pinpoint exactly where it is. Oh, this is where heaven is, exactly. Because really, and this is, this is sort of true for us here, especially when we, we talk a lot about heaven on earth. Well, then where's heaven? What's heaven? At least for what you know it. Well, it's right here. But it's not just you sitting here. It's not like you can come in here and say, well, I'm, I'm in heaven now because I'm sitting in a pew. And, and I've crossed the threshold. Now I'm in heaven because this is the geographical location where I now reside. Well, it's not quite it. Now you walk in here. You come up here. And, and you, know, uh, you get the body and blood of Christ. And there it is. And it's this whole experience. You, all of this together is heaven. And it's just going to be even greater than that because that's heaven on earth. That's the closest we can get to heaven here, but it's going to be much better. Again, it's the church service that never ends, where you know all of the hymns, and you never have to struggle. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Uh, questions before we try to move on, if we if we can. I just have oh, a yeah. comment. I think for myself. Yes. You really changed the way that I looked at heaven, and when a loved one dies. You know, because, well, I'm being judged because I always thought that it was at death, mm -hmm. you know, that you were judged heaven or hell, but we're not. And it just blows my mind to think that our loved ones are with Christ, but they're just, I look at it as being out there somewhere now. Yeah. Resting in peace. Yes. <clears throat> yes. I really wish I wouldn't have missed last week. Emily was. <coughs> Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> it's, if you really want to sit down and have a chat with me, anytime you want to come and talk. <laughs> As you can tell, I love to talk. Uh, so <clears throat> so that's, that's a okay. Yeah, th now there, was, there was actually another thing I was thinking about. Um, Last week you were going to tell us a story, but, and I thought you jotted it down, but oh. do you remember? <laughs> uh, no. Well, let, me, let me tell you a little something. Uh, last week was so long ago. Oh. <laughs> I, 
I, I can basically function one day at a time. Uh, that's why I have, a, I have a big calendar. It's an eight and a half by 11 calendar because I have to write everything down in it. And if I don't write it down, it's just gone. <laughs> that's what they tell you. The mind's the first thing to go. So here's what you have to look forward to. Um, no, I don't remember what story I was going to tell, which is, I guess, too bad. I have a lot of stories to tell. I just don't remember what that one was. I think because we did talk about Abraham and Isaac. Yeah? Okay. That's the one thing that I do have written down is Abraham and Isaac, but I thought we'd already done that. We need to have Carolyn sitting there, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you suppose we'll be aware uh, of the judgment at death, uh, even though we're Those that are uh, surely have the, the idea or it's inferred that they're going to heaven uh, well, at that time. I mean, that's better than standing around playing pool for a thousand years. Well, yeah, I mean, you, this, is, this is the whole thing about why we use white, why the funeral sermon is so great, because you can preach the resurrection. Because that's, that's the truth. You've fallen asleep in the faith. And, and when you've fallen asleep in the faith, well, of course, you have the hope of the resurrection. You die knowing, and that's my job, too, is to make sure that you die knowing that you fall asleep in the faith, knowing that the resurrection is for you, that life everlasting is for you. Why? Because Christ is for you. Christ is for you. And if Christ is for you, who can be against you? Certainly not death. Christ already stomped death into the ground. How can death be against you if you're with Christ? He's on your team. It's not even that you're on Christ's team. That's the thing. No, it's not like Christ is over there picking sides and says, yeah, I want him. Get over here. You know, it, you, he's on your team. Christ comes and he's on your team. He comes for you. So you know that you are receiving life. That the judgment that has been cast upon Christ we talked there are two judgments. Okay? The second judgment that Christ receives, the resurrection, the judgment of life, that is the judgment that has been won for you. You live though you die. That, that's, the, that's the great paradox of the Christian faith. You don't die even though you die. Why? Because you died before you died. Okay? When, yeah, baptism. When you die before you die, you don't die when you die. When you die to sin, when you die to death, when you die to the world, when the waters of holy baptism come down and those, that torrential judgment downpour floods the ecosystem that is your life, it just whoosh, devastates it. And out of those waters, a new man daily emerges and arises to live before God in uh, innocence and blessedness <laughs> forever. You've died already. Your body will die but you'll be resurrected in your, in your body, in your flesh. That's the, and that's the thing, the, the modern, so this is, this is one of the problems with the modern society, is that it's uh, a recurrence of the heresism of Gnosticism, or Gnosticism, Gnostics. They say that nothing in this world really matters. This body doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want to this body because my body doesn't matter. It's all about the spirit. Ooh, I, you know, what's my, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, which as an aside is a really bad thing. Why? Because if you're open to spirits <laughs> and you're not discerning about what spirits you're going to be open to, they're going to come a knocking and 
you're going to open that door to them, and you're not going to know what kind of a spirit you just let in. So that's, that's that little rant about being spiritual. But, rats, now I, now I don't even remember what I was saying. <laughs> oh, right, Gnosticism. Oh, yeah, the body doesn't matter. The flesh doesn't matter. Nothing that I have matters. This whole life, it, it doesn't matter at all because the only thing that matters is my spirit. Well, that's not true either. The body does matter. The body does matter. You were created with the body. Yeah, and this is, so, yeah, here, this is what I was going to say last week. That him. I am but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. It's a bad hymn. Yes, it's a bad hymn. Do you want to know why? Because you're not a stranger here. Because you're, do you have flesh and bones on your body? You were made to be here. God created the earth and he created man to be in the earth. That is your home. You are supposed to be here. You're just not supposed to live in the sin that surrounds it, which is why in the resurrection, it's all about the new creation. It's going to be like Eden again, but much better. It's going to be the way creation was supposed to be. You're not a stranger here. You're a stranger in sin. But even then, you know, as a Christian, you're a stranger in sin. But as a human being, you're not. As our verse of the week indicates, conceived and born in sin. So you're not really a stranger to sin. But as a Christian, you are. And, you know, we talk about being in the world but not of the world. Okay, sure. But that doesn't mean that you're not a human being. You're not some celestial alien that's come down to take residency here. You're still a human. You still have flesh and bones. It's like Luther's... Um, Luther has the Christian questions and their answers in, in here. And if you've not read them, oh, do it, do it, do it. It's on, it's part of the small catechism. Yeah, on page, it's 329 and 330 in there. And I love this. I love it, love it, love it. The, the last two questions. 19, number 19. What should admonish and encourage a Christian to receive the sacrament frequently? First, the command and the promise of Christ the Lord. Okay, faith receives the command of Christ, and it trusts in the promises. Christ says, do this, because you're going to get life. And faith says, well, I know that Jesus wants to give me life, and he said to do it, and, he, and, and there's life there. So I want it. Which one are you reading there, Pastor? Uh, I'm on page 330. Question number 19, it's at the bottom left. Oh, okay. A second, his own pressing need because of which the command, encouragement, and promise are given. This is the other thing. God does not make arbitrary laws. Now let's look at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. From, that's, that's our catechism for the week. Okay? Fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does it tell us about God? God doesn't want to be known as a judge. God doesn't want to be known as the guy who's going to cast fire and brimstone. That's not... That's not how he wants to be known. He wants you to know him as a God of love. He wants you to know him as a God who's going to forgive your sins. That is his primary attribute, is love. That is how you know God. So the Ten Commandments, they're not arbitrary. They're God telling you, I love you. I want to take care of you. This is how we're going to do it. You know, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. It's not God saying, I don't like any of those other ones and I want you to be mine. But look, they're bad. this is bad for you. Okay? I don't, we, nobody wants what's bad for you. I don't want you to put your nose in a meat slicer. Why? Because it's bad for you, okay? 
I want you not to do that. So when I tell you, don't put your nose in the meat slicer, it's not me making up some arbitrary rule because, because I just am against meat slicers for some weird reason. It's because it's bad for you and I don't want that to happen to you. I'm trying to take care of you. Just, you know, set, I'm setting some boundaries. Don't, just don't do this. Why? Oh, because it's bad for you. I'm containing you within the things that are good for you. I'm building boundaries so that you reside within the things that are good and that you don't try and hop over that wall and get into the things that are bad for you. Why do we practice closed communion? For the same reason that you lock up the cleaning supplies when you have a toddler that freely roams the house. You don't want a toddler drinking a gallon of bleach. I don't want to feed you poison. If you don't believe it's Jesus, then I'm not going to give it to you, not because I don't love you. There's nothing would make me happier than to give you the body and blood of Christ. But for you, if you do not believe, if that's not received by faith, it's still the body and blood of Christ, but it becomes poison. I'm not going to pour bleach down your throat. I'm going to contain you within the things that are good. Okay? So that's how God works. The promises of God, the commands of God, it's all given to point you to the things that are good for you, to point you to a right relationship with God, to point you to receiving the things of God rightly. Okay. Now, this is, this is my favorite part. The last question, what should you do if you are not aware of this need? Oh, you don't know that you need the sacrament, okay. And you have no hunger and thirst for the sacrament. To such a person, no better advice can be given than this. First, he should touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood. <laughs> are you alive? <laughs> Is that heart of yours beating? All right, well, if yes, then continue. Then he should believe what the scriptures say of it, okay? That you're a sinner, that your body is in need, that you need medicine. You know, Luther also says, if you could see, if the eyes of your flesh could see the number of fiery darts the devil hurls at you, you would flee to the sacrament. If your eyes were opened and you saw every single assault, it would be like um, what the Spartans said to the Persians. Our arrows will blot out the sun if you choose to fight us. Then we'll fight in the shade. That's what it'll be like. You go out and you fight in the shade because the number of fiery darts that come at you blot out the sun. So flee to the place where you find refuge. But, but so the point that I'm making though is the, the way that he says, um, touch your body to see if you still have flesh and blood. Touch your body. The body matters. This body matters. And when you die, this is why we, we bury. You die because you, the body is raised. The body is resurrected. And uh, this is the same body that will see Christ. These mine eyes. These eyes are the ones that we'll see. You're not going to get new eyes. You're not going to be reborn as a bunch of automatons who are engineered to perfection so that you never break down again. You're just going to be engineered by the Creator the way you were supposed to be. All the gunks cleaned out and you're perfected. That these mine eyes, this my body. Yes? Yeah. You know, why not let somebody else have my heart come on my kidneys, you know, whatever. So then for some reason we think you were talking about, you know, the resurrection. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, so my lungs gonna come out? 
come from over here, and my kidney's going to come from over there. So, <laughs> really weird, bizarre picture, and that's what I did. Uh, but, I mean, organ donation is still okay, right? I mean... Yeah, well, there's, there's mixed opinions on organ donation. I'm not... I'm not opposed to it. I think that, I think that it can be a very good thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean, but that, but that doesn't mean in the resurrection that you're not going to have your lungs. You know? Right. You know, and and this is this is the thing too about because this begs the question question then about like uh, burial at sea. Okay, what happens to your body burial at sea? What happens to your body uh, when you're cremated? Okay. It, it, so there's these questions now. I think that the God who created man out of the dust of the ground can probably create man out of the dust of the ground and bring his body back. Okay? So, you know, you reach a certain point where you have to, and this is, this is going to sound like a cop-out, and I don't want it to, but you reach a certain point where you sort of have to just say, I commend this to God. You know, I, my preferred practice is that, the, it, that you bury a body, that not... Not the ashes, just because of the confession that is made. Doesn't mean God's not going to raise somebody from ash. Doesn't mean God's not going to raise somebody from a burial at sea. And when you really stop and think about it, what happens to your body? Your body decomposes. Your body decays. You return to the dust from which you were taken. So you're still being brought back from dust, in a sense. Right. I remember hearing one time that since populationary things grow so much that we would come to a place that everyone's going to be cremated because running out of burial sites. Maybe. Yeah, so <laughs> that's another thing. Europe already has. Europe already has. Well, maybe. In the, the historic <coughs> Christian practice has been just normal burial. But again, it's for the confession what it says. What does it say when you bury the body? What does it say when the body goes in and you make a big deal about saying, no, it can't, it doesn't face this way. Turn it, it faces this way. This is the way it's, it's going to go to the ground. And what, what is the confession that's made? And, and that's, again, you know, everything, everything here, I, I sound like a broken record and I apologize, but everything here, every part of the liturgy, every part of my garb, everything is designed to both elicit and answer the question of your salvation. You are being taught, and you don't even realize that you're being taught. All these things serve to teach as they confess the faith. So, and, uh, and all of our practices then do that too. It's why the church is picky about what kinds of things it does. Because everything that it does reflects Christ and proclaims him and teaches him. Which is why then, when it comes to funeral practices, we have specific practices. Again, I'm, you, don't, you don't ever want to put God in a box and say, well, no, uh, well, if you cremated your loved one, God's not going to raise him up because there's no body. Well, mm, too bad for you. That would be a, just a, a terrible thing to say, first of all, because you want to be, a, you want just act like a human being, have a little bit of compassion, have a little bit of empathy, and know when it's okay to say something and when it's not. And that would be a time when it's not okay to say it. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. You just don't say it because you care about the other person. Uh, but even beyond that, 
It's just then making everything about you. And uh, if you've learned one thing in the time that I've been here, who is it not about? You. It's not about you, so don't try and make it about you. Jesus has already made it about what he's doing for you. He's got the show. Don't try and steal it from him. He's holding the mic. Don't try and rip it away. Just let him do his thing. Okay? Um, so you don't want to make it about you. Uh, which is also then, you know, a reason to avoid it because you fall into the same trap. Well, I guess not trap, but pitfall that many of the evangelical denominations fall into when they make baptism a work of themselves. When they say, I have to be the one to make up my mind that I'm going to be baptized, or I have to be the one to confess to God that I'm going to be baptized. I have to accept baptism, or I have to choose baptism, or I have to choose Jesus. I found God. Yeah, I found God. No, you didn't. He found you, and he'd been standing in front of you the whole time, and you just weren't looking at him. He's been with you the whole time. God found you. God found you. God chose you. Okay? So don't make it about yourself. Don't, don't give God an arbitrary... God doesn't give you arbitrary lists. Don't give God an arbitrary list and say, well, God, you're, you're now only going to make baptism work if we follow these specific set of instructions. And if even one point is off, then it's not going to work. And even then, even if you get everything just right, you know, these people are pretty bad, so sometimes you're going to have to just baptize them again and again and again if the first one doesn't stick. <laughs> well, you laugh, but there are people like that. There are people like that in my family. I, I went to the seminary with people who came from a background like that that were baptized multiple times. Why? Because you, you're baptized and then you sin and you go, oh, well, I guess the baptism didn't work because it's supposed to make sure I never sin again. So then you go back and you get another baptism. Well, maybe this, it maybe, maybe if he really holds me under this time, it'll, it'll work. <laughs> you know? I, I really want this baptism to stick. And, you know, this is the thing. So, uh, you know, I've talked about baptism is like a tattoo, right? It's like a tattoo. It's like a brand. Now, when you go to get a tattoo or, or when you brand, hopefully you've never branded yourself, but if you, if you brand a cow or something, okay, you know, that, how easy is it to remove that? How easy is it to remove a tattoo when you've decided to commit and you've gotten it? How, how easy is it to remove? Not. <laughs> okay? It's not easy. And that's sort of the whole point about why, those, why you do those things. You do a brand because it's a hard thing to remove. It's a mark. And it's, it's a mark that you can't just wash away. Why do you get a tattoo? Because you want something there that's going to show something and you don't want it to wash off. Okay? That's what baptism is. It's not, your baptism is going to stick whether you want it to or not. Because it's a brand. It's a tattoo. Right? You, you, you bring the little pagans to me and I put some water on them. I speak the word of God. And then it's like magic. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Christ has made a little pagan into a little Christian. He's cast out the devil, which is why the baptism liturgy, the good one, has an exorcism at the beginning. Now depart, you unclean spirit, and make way for the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's out. The bad is out, and the good is in. There it is. And that child is in Mark. There's a brand. There's a tattoo. And it's not something that washes off. So you're baptized once, and it sticks. Again, whether you want it to stick or not, it's there. Um, so the, the idea that, oh, wow, 
I just keep sinning. I guess the baptism wasn't good enough. He didn't tattoo me well enough. He didn't brand me hard enough because it's gone away now. No, no, it's still there. But you are, Psalm uh, 55, conceived and born in sin. So your baptism saves you. Yes, it does. Your baptism gives you the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it does. But you're still a human being. You still have flesh and, flesh and bones. Yeah, you do. Okay? You, your baptism is like your admission to the hospital. Your baptism is your admission to the You're sick. You need to come to the hospital. Baptism says, oh, here you go. Here you go. Here you go. We're rushing you in now. The doors are open. You're in the hospital. And then baptism goes back out to the next guy. Okay, come on. Come on in. Come on into the hospital. Come in. We've got to get you in where there's life. We've got to get you in here where there's forgiveness. And then what happens in the hospital? Well, you've got to take your medicine. You've got to take your medicine. Body of Christ given for you. Blood of Christ given for you. Come get your medicine. And your medicine has to be repeated... Uh, repeatedly administered. Not because it doesn't stick, because you need it so badly. You know, when you get a course of antibiotics, you don't just take one pill and magically go, wow, I feel so much better, I'm just going to throw this, the rest of this two-week course away. I don't want any more of that, because I feel really good. I had the one pill, and I'm set. You know? And if that's how you're, you're going to operate, maybe then you need to have a talk with your doctor, because I don't really think that's how that works. Um, of course, I'm no doctor, so I don't know. But, but, um, you know, the sacrament is the, is the same way. So when Luther talks about your pressing need, well, you've had it, okay? There you go, you've had it. And then you go home, and then you come back, and uh, is the pressing need still there? Well, you know, I did have it. Well, have it again. <laughs> I, I remember when I was growing up, the first Lutheran church that we ever went to, after we left the Christian Reformed Church, there were two services. There was an early service and a late service. And the pastor wouldn't commune himself at the late service. So, you know, I commune myself first. I commune the elders. And this, it always irradiates out to the congregation. And, uh, and he didn't. And I remember asking him about that. And he said, well, you know, I communed at the first service, so I don't really need to commune for the second service. I don't, and, and I just remember, and now I was only like 10 or, 10 or 11 when he said that, and I remember just thinking, well, now, just a minute. <laughs> yeah, let's pump the brakes here, Pastor. If this really is the body and blood, and if it really does what you say that it does, shouldn't you want that if it's offered a second time? What, what's the big, can you really get too much Jesus? Oh, no, no thanks, Jesus. I'm full of you. Come back next time. <laughs> oh, what? Can you get, is there, there's, you know, in life, there's, you can get too much of a lot of things. But too much Jesus is one thing you can never have. Uh, so anyway, back to Gnosticism. Uh, you know, the, body, the body does matter, and this is what Gnosticism says doesn't. And you look at the culture, you know, well, my body doesn't matter. It's all about what I feel. The feeling is the new spirit. My feeling says that I'm really a four-year-old girl, even though my body says that I'm a 27-year-old man. But I, I really, inside, I feel like I'm a four-year-old girl. So that's just what I'm going to do now because none of this matters. The body doesn't matter. It's whatever I feel like I want. Whatever my passions say that I am or that I want. But, it, but the body does matter. 
Her body does matter, and that's the confession of the Christian church, and it has been. Gnosticism, has, that was a, an early heresy, and the church fought hard against that was a That was a, that was a harsh battle uh, with, with, the, excuse me, with the Gnostics and the Arians, too. Gnostics and Arians. When you look at the Nicene Creed, uh, by and large, that's against Arians. Arians say, Jesus is the Son of God, sure, but he's not made of the same. Whatever God's made of, Jesus is not made of that. God just sort of made Jesus like man was made. And the church said, no, Jesus is part of the Trinity. And then they write the creed. And then Gnosticism, the body doesn't matter. No, it does. So we're going to confess the resurrection, not of the spirit, the resurrection of the body. And here's sort of the last thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does that mean? Why is there three? Because you are made in the image and likeness of God. You're made in the image and the likeness of God. And what is God? God is triune. And as God is triune, you are made in his image and likeness. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit, a mind, a will. And you are the assembly of all of these things together in one. So when you die, one part isn't the only part that's going to rise. It's all. The body does matter because the body is part of who you are. This is why church fathers like Augustine can say that the ultimate sin of man was pride. When you look at Adam and Eve, now where is the sin? Most of the time you're going to say, well, God told them not to eat of the fruit and they took it and it was the moment when they took it and ate it that they disobeyed the law because they, you know, they crossed that threshold. They disobeyed. But that's not the way the church has spoken. Because of the fact that man is body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and mind. Man has three parts, and they are all intimately connected. One cannot function without the other. So, when the will of man decides, I am going to be my own God, and I'm going to eat that fruit, the body follows with the soul and all mankind then falls. But it is the, it, it's the pride of thinking to yourself, I'm going to be God, and I can be God better than God can. Because Satan says, oh, you won't surely die. God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. And they say, oh, really? I could be like God? Well, what do I need God for if I can be God myself? It's the thought, it's the pride of wanting to be God that drives the eating of the fruit. But you see that it's all connected. It's the desire of the will, the pondering of the soul, the decision of the mind, and then the actions of the body. But it's all together. It's all together because the body, the soul, the spirit, this Trinitarian union that you have just by nature of the fact that you are a human being, that God has created and breathed life into, it's all connected.
When the soul falls, the body falls. When the mind falls, the, the soul falls. No, you can't, you, can't, you can't die and then have your spirit be the one that is raised up and says, wow, it's so great to be free from that body now. You know? No, because your soul is just a part, it's a third of who you are. You can't be raised without the body. You can't be raised without one of the substantial pieces that says who you are. And that's the biggest problem with the Gnosticism of the early church and the Gnosticism of the modern age. The body doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. So anyway, uh, questions? <laughs> All right, well, I see no questions, so uh, clear as mud, I suppose. Um, okay. Next week, we're really, we, we really are going to try and talk about the Magnificat. <laughs> um, okay, uh, let us depart in the peace and joy of our Lord. <laughs>